We're turning back to that passage in Ephesians and the second chapter that we have read from tonight, Ephesians 2, and we're looking at verse 1 through to verse 3. And do remember for those that weren't here this morning but are here tonight, obviously then uh, we would say to you that we're having on Wednesday night, the 21st of February, a sign-up session. It's a response to the consultation that has been launched as a result of the desire of some within Belfast City Council to make it pretty difficult for street preachers to keep going with amplification in the city center, and also to clamp down on those that would be displaying the kind of graphic imagery that you need to show when you're standing on an anti-abortion protest. So, Uh, That will be done, God willing, on the 21st of February. We had a very successful night uh, last year when we took on the consultation for the RSE, and we had over 40 people that put in submissions on that occasion. Let me say that this one is simpler to fill in, and we would like you to come and we'll have a good time of fellowship, as we did the last time, and get as many returns in on this issue as we possibly can. I've been speaking to Reverend Gordon Dean, who's the current chairman of our Government and Morals Committee within the church, and he has encouraged other congregations to follow the martyr's lead do it the way we did it the last time, and therefore try to get as many uh, submissions as we possibly can. And we'll be trying to encourage that even further in the interval between now and the 21st. Keep in mind, please, and do try to come. Ephesians and the second chapter, and verse 1 through to verse 3. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now that sounds like a highfalutin' title, as if this could almost be someone that was a power for good. But it's a title of the devil, the prince of the power of the air. And just in case we thought it is pointing to someone good, then the same person described in the next phrase, the spirit that now worketh. But notice where he's working, in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. The word for conversation includes conduct, in the loss of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So we have here tonight, in this section of Ephesians 2, this idea the walking or the living dead. The living dead. With the Word of God open before us, let's bow together, please, in a further word of prayer. 
Our Heavenly Father, again, we look to Thee and we pray for Thy help because we need it. The hymn writer was so right when he said, I need Thee. Oh, I need Thee. Every hour, I need Thee. And as we go about in this earth, what we don't even at times look upon as a risk or a danger, things can very quickly become that all around us. We thank Thee that Abba said, He shall give His angels charge over Thee to keep Thee in all Thy ways. Lord, we do pray for Thy care and Thy protection, for Thine eye to be upon us as we know it is. Our Savior challenged us regarding our take on God's care. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? Ye are of more value than of many sparrows. A sparrow doesn't fall out of the sky onto the ground without your heavenly Father knowing. And we thank Thee for our Savior's application that God knows that we have need of these things. We thank Thee for one who cares. We were singing about that this morning in our morning meeting. Does Jesus care? When my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song, oh, yes, He cares. I know He cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When those days are dreary, the long nights weary, I know my Savior cares. And we thank you for those in the meeting tonight and those tuned in over the internet who know and who say, yes, He does. I am persuaded by my experience that He cares for me. Lord, come tonight and through the word of the gospel, some look upon it as harsh, straightforward, with a real cutting edge. But Thou art showing Thy love and Thy mercy in giving us an opportunity, another opportunity, to hear the Word of life, to be pointed again to Jesus Christ, to have Him set up before us as the only Savior of sinners. What a mercy that is. Undertake for thy word as it goes out here tonight and in all other places where Christ is preached. We pray that we will rejoice, and as Paul said, and do rejoice. For thy name and to thy glory we pray. Amen. The walking or the living dead. Back in Remembrance Sunday in 2023. We peruse the story of men who may well be called the living dead, those allied prisoners of war who suffered so horrifically in Japanese labor camps during that Second World War. They were the walking dead, 
torture, starvation, frequent beatings were their daily lot as they worked on the railways, including that notorious Burma-Thailand line, dubbed the Railway of Death. More than 16,000 allied POWs and 100,000 Asian laborers perished, clearing the jungle to build that line. On the eve of an anniversary, Koi Chai Sugano, a Japanese lieutenant at one of the death camps, had the absolute audacity to say that the Japanese had nothing to be ashamed of. I do not, he said, feel sorry. I think the reason the POWs bear a grudge is because we forced them to work. They hated that. Now, that is very far from the truth. And those numbered among the walking, the living dead, knew that. And when they heard this Japanese officer come out with that statement, they were highly offended and outraged. Bill Haltom, chairman of the Japanese Labor Camp Survivors Association, said that Mr. Sagano was wrong, totally and absolutely wrong. He said, I was at number two camp at Son Curai. 1,680 prisoners went there, and after three months, only 250 were left alive. They were the living dead, and I was one of them. Association committee member Tom Collins who survived the camp that we were talking about here just a few months ago at the River Kwai. They carried him out on a stretcher. He was weighing at the time only four and a half stones. He was clearly one of the walking, the living dead. And he said Japanese engineers like Saganum were the cruelest of their captors. His personal reflection? I was kicked off the top of the Kwai Bridge because I broke a tool. I got hit in the side of the head, fell into 12 feet of water. That water saved my life, but all the same, I broke my arm, a leg, and several ribs. Another survivor, Bill Reed, recalls the grisly details as to how a poor bloke was spread eagled across the front of a train that was then run into another train. He was crushed to death as a warning to others. I have other descriptions of the atrocities that occurred then, but I'll spare you the detail. Those who survived savagery of this nature, do they not qualify for the term and the description here, the walking or the living dead. That's what we find in Ephesians 2 and the verse 1 to 3. Paul is reminding the Christians in Ephesus of their testimony. He tells them, now this is your story. This is what happened to you in your spiritual lives. Verse 1, and you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past 
Ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, when you look at those words and try to work out what are they saying here, we understand immediately that Paul is speaking of people, and even though those people are alive, and very much alive in that day, still they had been dead. They were once the living dead. And I want you to come with me tonight as I highlight four simple, yet far-reaching observations that we have here in Ephesians 2, the verse 1 to 3. The passage teaches about the degradation through sin. The fact that all men are sinners by nature and by practice, there are no exceptions. Not me, not you, not anybody. Ephesians 2 and 1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Commentators have a little bit of difficulty in finding clear blue water between the two terms that are used here, trespasses and sins. Some have thought maybe trespasses are outward transgressions, sins are a manifestation of sin and shame as part of that old nature within you. What is inside gets out. Transgressions. The word as it appears in the original carries the idea of a fall. The root meaning of the word is actually to fall beside. And it brings us right back into the Garden of Eden, the biblical reality of that fall in Eden's garden when our first parents on probation, they transgressed that one command, that one prohibition that God had led before them, take of all the trees in the garden, freely enjoy, be satisfied, prosper because of them physically, but of this one tree in the center, the knowledge of good and evil, you're not allowed to take from that. That is banned off limits. Do not eat from that. But Adam and Eve did. They fail. Transgressions are all acts of our fallen nature. But the word sins, and here's why I think you'll see commentators can't really find the clear blue water between the two. There must be some sense of overlap here. You've heard it a thousand times that the word sin has that basic idea of missing the mark. Take an archer, pulls in the string, fires an arrow, drops short of the target. Rifleman, he's practicing, and he's trying to hit the bull's eye, but misses and doesn't get near the V-bull, goes right outside of the rings. The Holy Spirit has taken this word, and He has given it a spiritual meaning, and the spiritual meaning is this. Sin that we commit is missing the mark. It's a falling short 
And that sounds very much like transgressions as well. It's put another way in 1 John 3 and verse 4, sin is the transgression of the law. In other words, when I break the law of God, I have sinned. When I fall short of the glory of God, the perfect standard that God has placed in front of me and said, you must live up to that. When I fall short of it, I am committing transgression and sin. When I rebel against the law of God, again, I am showing I am a sinner. And Paul says, this is your condition. But there's been a change. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to include, just draw the circle as widely as he can to include all the folly, all the blindness, all the misjudgments, all the errors, all the mistakes of fallen man, as well as all of his blatant rebellion against God's law by his open ungodliness. Every sin is included. Man has a fallen nature. That fallen nature leads him to think fallen thoughts, leads him to desire fallen things, leads him to do fallen deeds. So we're beginning to get a picture here as to what sin is. By nature, all men are fallen. They are prone and liable to every kind of conceivable error and sin. And that should make us stop and think immediately. Many people when they're faced with the gospel, they take a step back and they, they wrinkle their face and they say, well, well, I, I think, I, I don't really think that I can accept that. And see, as soon as your thoughts are going contrary to the mind of God and going in a different direction to the thoughts of God, then you're like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, hath God said. Has he got it right? My thoughts are better than his. I know more than he does. What are we doing when we do that? We're giving evidence that we have a fallen nature within us. And every mental and moral blunder of which fallen man is capable, we are so liable to. The thinking that runs contrary to the Word of God is the height of folly. And so by nature, fallen prone to every error and mistake, liable to fall foul of every deceitful thing, prone to blindness, susceptible to every kind of evil. That is the nature of the sinner. What about his practice? Well, he's a rebel against God. He's a performer of every evil you can think of. He's a breaker of God's law. But that's the condition of every single man, a sinner by nature and a sinner by practice, and nobody out there can escape this universal condemnation. I think of Romans 3, verse 10 to 12, where it's a very important passage on the topic. As it is written, it says there, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is None that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And so it rules out every single person and says, we have all fallen short. We have all missed the mark. We have all transgressed. We have all sinned. 
And if we think Paul is painting with a very broad brush here, well, he takes up a smaller one and he paints in the tiny details. And it goes on in the same chapter, verse 13 to 17, to say, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. In other words, every single part of them, with every faculty they have, they sin. From head to toe. They're sinners by nature and sinners by practice. Quite a catalog. And you might be sitting tonight and thinking, see all of that detail that Paul goes into? I haven't been swift to shed blood. My mouth hasn't been dripping with cursing and bitterness. Well, if it hasn't, you want to praise God for the screening grace in that case. No sinner has any right to be proud about what he has not done. For it's only by the grace of God that you have been kept from doing everything that can be done. That feeling of revulsion that sweeps over your spirit when you hear some terrible, heinous crime has been committed. Say a whole family have been murdered in cold blood, and you're thinking, that's awful and terrible. Thank God for that reaction. Don't give yourself a pat on the back for feeling that way. It's the evidence of common grace. That's what it is. The evidence of God in His Spirit restraining. But there's a word in the passage here that every unsaved person in the meeting, in the city, in the district, in the country beyond, it applies to them all. In Romans 3 and verse 18, what do we read? There is no fear of God before their eyes. How blind sin can cause men and women to become. How foolish they can become. How deceived sinners can become when there is no fear of God inside of them. It is, of course, the very height of insanity. James tells us that the very devil himself has fear. He fears God. James 2 and verse 19. The devil believes. And believing, he trembles. Because he knows all that is said about God. This righteous God, this God who acts in wrath against sin, all of that is true. He knows it. And yet with people in their folly and they're strutting around Belfast and all over towns and cities, and they're thinking, a God of wrath, no, no, that's an Old Testament caricature. That's not reality. That's not who God is. God is love, and He's nothing but love, and He's only love. And there's no way that I, you know, I do some good things, so there's no way I'm going to be excluded from God's heaven. But the very same persons are those who slotted into those sections in the 2021 census here in Northern Ireland. And over many parts of Belfast, if not every single ward, were determining percentages between 35 and 45 percent of people who were saying, we don't have or follow any religion at all. 
In effect, they're saying there is no God. It's no interest to us. The things of God, the Word of God, the way of God, the Christ of God, the gospel of God. We don't want to hear. We don't need this. Sinning in the most blatant and flagrant manner against God, they have waved His Christ away from them. They have spatted His grace. They have no time for His Word. They have taken their hearts and turned it away from every single invitation of the gospel. That's why they don't want to hear preaching in the open air, in the center of Belfast, because they live for self, and they live for sin, and they have no fear of God. If they had, they wouldn't be challenging the proclamation of His Word. If they had any fear of God at all, they'd be watching their steps. They'd be very nimble in their footwork. They'd be very determined we are not going to bring upon ourselves the kind of condemnation that fell on those sinners in the days of Noah when the flood came, and those sinners in the days of Abraham when the fire and brimstone rained out of heaven upon their heads in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plain. They'd be thinking, this God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7, 11, his anger burns as an oven, Malachi 4 and 1. He has pledged himself that he will take vengeance on his adversaries and will not at all acquit the wicked, Nahum 1, verse 2 and 3. And therefore they would say, we are foolish in the extreme. If we dare with our puny strength, we have our fist in his face and defy him. Many people try to inoculate themselves against the fear of God by paying lip service to religion. And they'll maybe go to church from time to time. And they'll say, well, I believe in God. I believe in a son, Jesus Christ. And they'll pay respect to the minister, and they'll know all the right things to say that sign, you know, religious phrases. But still, there's nothing when you dig down. There's nothing of the fear of God about them. They imagine a little veneer of religion is going to be enough to close the doors of hell, open the gate of heaven, and allow them in. No chance, no hope. Romans 3 and 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law was the knowledge of sin. We can't perfectly keep the law. We fall short. We miss the mark every single time. We can't do what God demands because we're sinners by nature and we're sinners by practice. And before you ever come to Christ and get saved and feel your need of Him, you're going to have to realize this is where I am. I am a sinner by my nature. I am a sinner by my practice. This salvation Jesus offers, it deals with sin. But until you learn about your sin and grow to hate that sin and turn your back on that sin and repudiate that sin, you'll never turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation all men and women are sinners by nature and practice. The second thing, not only the degradation through sin, but the deadness in sin. The deadness in sin. Take a careful look at the first verse of Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in, dead in trespasses and sins. 
That doesn't mean that though as sinners we're spiritually dead, we can't originate some moral good actions. It doesn't mean that we're not responsible for our condition or for our activities. It doesn't mean that sinners have no conscience, that they can't be made to feel conviction. It doesn't mean that they're not capable of feeling deep emotion or even on occasions being moved by the preaching of the Word of God. It does not mean that. What it does mean is this. They have no spiritual life. Spiritually, they're dead, and if you're dead, then you don't have life. What is spiritual life? Well, our Savior answers that question in John 17 and 3. He says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, what is the litmus test here, the acid test? If I don't know God, and if I do not know Jesus Christ, and I'm not talking about facts and figures, I'm talking about knowing Him in our lives as our Savior, as our Lord, if I don't know Him in that way, then I don't have life eternal. I am still dead in trespasses and sins. I am out of fellowship with God on account of my sin. I am cut off from God because of my many transgressions. I am alienated from God and from His Christ. That's dead. It means I don't have the power to originate holiness. I don't have the ability to launch out in any course of action that is going to please God for the saving of my soul. The sinner is incapable of spiritual good. Now, I know that's not a popular message. Sit under the ministry of certain evangelical fundamental churches, and sadly, even there today, this message will sometimes not appear will not be preached. There's a real lack of emphasis on sin and the need for repentance. Dr. William Cunningham, greatest, great Scottish theologian who wrote extensively on historical theology in particular, he once said the mark of Arminianism is that it wishes to divide salvation between God and man. It's a bit of a carve-up Man, you do a little bit. Even if it's only 10%, you do the 10%, and then God will weigh in with the 90% and get you over the line of salvation. Or maybe you could do 20%, and God will come in with the 80% that is necessary. It's telling us that man, with that super free will of his, has the ability, inclination, to turn back to God. There is nothing further from the truth than that. A dead man cannot turn. He's not dead to sin. He can turn to sin, no problem. He's very much alive and inclined to it, but he's dead to God. In Romans 8 and verse 7, we are told, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And that man, woman, dead in sin, they have no desire, you know, to stop sin and quit with self. They have the desire to get away from hell and to enter into heaven. Of course, I've never known a man or woman to say that, oh, yes, I'm wanting to wind up in hell. He wants to escape the wrath of God, but he wants the pleasure of sin as well, and he doesn't want to pay the penalty for the pleasure of sin. He wants salvation, but not 
if it means giving up sin. He doesn't want to stop living for self. He doesn't want to give up on his own notions. You see why? Because he's dead in trespasses and in sins, dead by nature. All dead people, not alike. You can find in the physical realm death reigning over a million bodies. Yet the million bodies, very, very different. The body of a soldier who falls in battle may be mutilated, riddled through with bullets, might be left to rot. Has happened in many wars. His body may become food for scavengers. So that when it is found, you can hardly look upon it. Bodies that are fished out of or washed up from the river Lagan are apparently horrendous. The body of a little child in that tiny casket would draw a tear from a stone and can look as sweet as an angel, but death is reigning equally over it. Corruption may not have expressed itself equally in all cases, but the death that is the cause of that corruption reigns equally in all cases. In other words, what I'm saying is this. You don't have to be an alcoholic. You don't have to be a drug addict. You don't have to be a prostitute. You don't have to be a murderer in order to be dead in trespasses and in sins. You can be like that little baby in the coffin. You can appear, and people might even describe you as a bit of an angel in your community. But if you're yet without Christ, you're dead. Just as dead as the alcoholic. Just as dead as a drug addict. Just as dead as a prostitute. Just as dead as the murderer. Dead in trespasses and in sins. Paul is saying that is the case with all of us by nature. So that's two thoughts, the degradation through sin, the deadness in sin, the dominion through sin. Dead sinners, here's what Paul is teaching here in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, dead sinners are dominated by the devil. Hold on a minute, I think you've been going a fair distance already. That might be just going too far to say that Okay, I'm, I'm dead in trespasses and in sins. I've fallen far short of all that God has demanded of me, but to say that I'm being dominated by the devil, well, what are we told here in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3? And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein, in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world. Here's the words to underline. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, the living dead. Walking, we're told here. The walking dead. How do they walk? Well, we walk according to the course of this world, so we have the course of the sinner. If you take your Bible and study it through, you'll discover that men and women in this world on the broad road are walking on a course that is downward to destruction, that is against God, 
that he's headed for the lake fire. That's how, that's where sinners are walking to. This is the with it generation today, and it's the greatest tragedy that can ever catch up on a man to be with it, because if he's with it in the way they term, if he's woke in the way they describe, he's actually blind and dead, following the course of the world, headed for shame and fleeing, damnation and distress. Consider the control of the sinner. That's the main thought and the point here. He walks not only according to the course of this world, but according to the prince of the power of the air. We mentioned free will a moment or two ago. Free will? Whoever sold you the lie that the will of man was free? The Holy Ghost never said it. The Bible never teaches it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once preached a sermon that he entitled, Free Will? a slave. Martin Luther handed the world one of its greatest ever theological treaties, and under the title it came, The Bondage of the Will. And Luther was actually having a big agitated battle with Erasmus, the Greek scholar, but an unconverted man here at this time. And Erasmus was teaching, the will of man is free, it's free, it's free. And Luther was saying, no, it's bound. The bondage of the will. And when Luther looked back on the Reformation times, the great days of the Protestant Reformation, he said the keynotes of the Reformation, yes, justification by faith alone in Christ alone for sure, but here's a key point. It was this one, the recognition that the will of man was bound and Almighty God was sovereign. God is free. We are not. We need to get hold of this. Every sinner is in bondage to the devil. We think we're as free as a bird, light in the air, that we're doing our own thing, and nobody can interfere, that we're fulfilling our own desires. The Bible says, no, you're not. You're walking according to the prince of the power of the air. You're being dominated. You're being dictated to. You're not free. The devil is leading you. You're under his dominance. How do you know if you're walking with the devil? There's a very straightforward way to find out. Look at the phrase in Ephesians 2 and 2, the children of disobedience. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Disobedience comes from two words. One is just a simple negative. The other comes from persuade. In these people, the children of disobedience, here's how you could describe them. The sons and the daughters of unpersuadableness. Unpersuadableness. How do I know if I'm walking according to the prince of the power of the air? How do I know if that evil spirit, the devil, is working within me? How do I know if I'm in bondage to him, being dictated to by him? How do I know? Here's how you know. If you cannot be persuaded in heart and mind by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're not convinced to wholly follow the Lord, then you are following the devil. Whose side are you on? Whose control are you under? Sin is never liberation. 
To reject Jesus Christ is never freedom. To live for the world and for self and for the devil is not freedom, it's bondage. People who think they're free because we are doing our own thing here, they have found sin to be bondage, not freedom. It's the boss. You never are. It's why we talk about addictions, things we can't break, things that have the power over us that we can't get on top of. It's sin. Control of the sinner. Notice also the corruption of the sinner that's described here in Ephesians 2 and 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the loss of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And so in a few words here, you've got a holy ghost-given description of that bottomless pit of human pollution. It's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the mind. It's the diet the world feeds on today. And behind sometimes what is a religious appearance, you've got a heart that is churning as wildly and vilely as any sewer. All the lusts are flowing. The outside may look fine, but the mind, it's a whirlpool of wickedness. It's black as hell itself. Chamber of imagery, a secret place of inner sin. Mark 2, the condemnation of the sinner. Final line there, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. They're exposed to the wrath of God. And see also the company they're with, even as others. No change has been made in your life. You're still in the crowd that's going against God. You're still against Christ. You're still against His Word. You're still against and away from salvation. And you're going deeper and deeper down in sin. There has been no repentance in your life, no about turn. You're on the road to a lost eternity. By nature and practice, a sinner. And what you're doing as you travel along is you're just exposing yourself to the wrath and the fury of God. I close on a positive note. The degradation through sin, the deadness in sin, the dominion through sin, the deliverance from sin. And what I'm saying here is this. The only hope for sinners who are the living dead is a spiritual resurrection. That's your only hope. A spiritual resurrection. Do we read about that? Look at the first line of Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened. It's in verse 1. It's in verse 5, repeated as well. Quickened. That's your only hope. A bit of a cosmetic exercise? No use. It only masks reality. Like powder may be applied to cover over a spot and keep it from being visible to others. 
just a little surface dressing is no good for you. The problem's inside. The problem's in the heart. And yet multitudes of people all over the world are trying to get away with a little bit of cosmetic exercising here. What are the mainline churches largely about? Patching up, plastering over sin, doing a bit of a paint job, trying to explain away man's sin and to make him feel that he's pretty much good as he is, patching up the man, plastering over his iniquities, trying to make him feel less and less about the sin that he's committing. What is the thing that travels today under the name easy believism that has infiltrated a lot of evangelical churches that emphasizes faith in Jesus Christ but does not preach repentance from sin? It's just another way of trying to cosmetically treat the problem that must be decisively dealt with. Our Lord in His gospel is saying in, for example, John 3 and 7, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. That's not cosmetic. In John 5 and 24, He talked about life from the dead. In these words, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And that is your only hope, to pass from death unto life. We started there in the station of death. Dead in trespasses and in sins. In Ephesians 2, verse 12, if you look down the chapter, you'll see another description, strangers from the covenants of promise. What I really want you to see is the next phrase, having no hope. And if you're not saved, that's where you are. Having no hope. And without God in this world, and until this situation is addressed and remedied, everything else you do or try is just empty and a mockery. You need quickened. You need to pass from death unto life. And if you've seen your real spiritual condition that's very plainly painted in our passage tonight, and if the Holy Ghost has worked on your heart and caused you to open your eyes and see that this is where I am, and it's in an awful position, and given you a holy hatred for it, if He has, He will point you to the answer. He'll say you need a spiritual resurrection. Anything short of that is no use. And the Lord declared in John eleven twenty five, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He, Jesus Christ, is God's answer. The only one, the only one who can give you and me life. And I'm pleading with you, apply to Him tonight. How do I do that? You simply cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I am a sinner by nature. I am a sinner by practice. I am dead in my trespasses and in my sins. I need to be made alive, quickened. And I recognize none but Jesus. None but Jesus can do me a helpless sinner good.